1 Corinthians chapter 5 continues what we began last week from the same chapter, even though last week we only looked at two verses. But we said last week that those two verses at the beginning of chapter 5 are kind of the rest of chapter 5 in seed form, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first two verses said very powerful and, if we're honest with one another, very uncomfortable things. And we're going to be unpacking something that we had to bypass last week. So if you'll read with me just in the first two verses, we'll just kind of refresh ourselves on what we approached and contemplated last week. The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first two verses say, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now it's that second or that very last sentence, let him who has done this be removed from among you, that we're going to have to broach today and explain and understand what it means and what it doesn't mean through the rest of the chapter. Let me ask you a couple of questions, though, to begin Do you remember back in the Old Testament when God kept asking his people to do really, really strange-sounding things? And he would tell them that if they would just do these things that seemed to not make sense, on the other side of that, God will do a work. You remember? This is almost like the story of everything in the Old Testament. God tells Noah to build this really, really, really big boat. And if you'll just obey me, everything will be okay. God tells Joshua, when you go into the land of Canaan, there's this first city that you're going to have to conquer, and it's called Jericho, and here's the way that you're going to win against that big army. Not with your sword, not with your spears, not with laying siege to it, You're going to march around that city seven times, and on the seventh time, you're going to blow your trumpets, and you're going to win. And then God tells Moses before that, he says, hey, you're going to have a battle with these people, I believe the Amalekites, and and as you're in battle with them, here's how you are going to win the battle, Moses. As long as your arms are raised really high, you'll be winning. But if your arms ever drop, you'll start losing. Can I ask you a question? Be honest with yourself. If you had been there, if you had been one of the Israelites, would you have been one of the people who were like, yeah, let's just do what God says and it'll all turn out okay? Or would you have been one of the naysayers, one of the grumblers among the Israelites I've been around a long time. I'm no spring chicken, and that's not how you win a battle. I know that much. Now, I know for sure that blowing a trumpet's not going to do anything to those walls. Now, y'all can go out there and blow the trumpet as much and as long and as hard and as loud as y'all want to, but it's not going to win any battles. Today, as we're talking about a very uncomfortable and often overlooked and just avoided by pastors, a topic that's avoided by pastors, What I'm trying to suggest to you today 
is that we actually, even though we don't live in Old Testament times anymore where we could have gone back, and if I had just been there, I would have been one of the faithful ones. I would have been one of the ones who just did whatever God said and left the results to God. We actually have an opportunity today to do it right. Even though we can't go into the Old Testament, God has laid before us a plan that seems like it would never work. And the question for the church today is, are we going to believe God or are we going to naysay and grumble? Here's another illustration. I want to begin by asking you a question. Is a sharp, I actually have one in my pocket, uh, after Christmas uh, there's, a, there's a very large case knife dealer uh, in the next town over from where I grew up and uh, it's, it's a hardware store and they're one of the biggest case knife dealers and, and I swung by and saw one that I liked and I purchased it and one of the things that case knives pride themselves on is, is that they make their knives out of surgical steel. Let me ask you this question. Is a sharp, surgical-grade steel knife, is that a weapon? And I think that the answer to that question has to be, it depends. Right? It depends. It depends on how you use it. You can use a sharp, surgical-grade steel knife as a weapon like a mugger would in a dark alley in some city, some crime-ridden city somewhere. Or it could be used like a skillful surgeon who does cut the body, but he only ever cuts to heal. Right? So the, the answer to that question has to be it depends. See, the Bible has some very interesting things to say about wounds. The Bible says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Have you got any friends that you allow to wound you for your good? Friends that you've given the keys to your life and you've said, listen, you have permission to say whatever you think I need to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of of an enemy. In other words, the kisses of an enemy, they're all over the place. The woods are full of them, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. What if, friends, just like a, a knife, the knife that I have in my pocket, what if the very thing that God intends for our healing and for our health, we actually perceive as a threat? No, I don't want to be cut. I don't want to be wounded. That's, that's never for my good. But what if God only ever uses his knife to heal us? That's what we are contemplating today in 1 Corinthians 5 as we are dealing with such thorny issues as church membership and church discipline. Let me read the passage to you in its entirety, beginning at verse 3. I read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 3, it says this, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, how can you avoid everybody who's a sinner? You yourself are a sinner. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Father, the words of this passage are good for us, and yet they sound to our ears abrasive. Lord, I pray that we would understand them rightly. I pray that I would be able to illumine them, that I would uh, not hold back from what the Bible says, but that I would also uh, share this in a charitable and gentle and thoughtful way. Lord, would you give us this today? Give us ears to hear whatever is in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, uh, as, uh, as I told our class uh, in our Next Steps class, final class that we had this morning, I said, you know, I kind of thought about, because I'm, I'm preaching about the same things, I kind of thought about asking for a show of hands. And I'm not going to, so don't raise your hand. I thought about asking for a show of hands for who in this room has ever heard, or can you remember the last time that you heard a sermon on church discipline? I'm not going to ask you to answer that question because I'm, I'm really not as interested in that. I can tell you from my story, I grew up at a, at a successful, uh, large, uh, so there's probably the, the second largest church in our county, uh, Southern Baptist Church. Uh, never heard about this. Never heard it approached. Never heard it addressed. Uh, I was at least three years into a, a degree program in theology before I recognized that this is actually a thing in the Bible. Now imagine the challenge that comes with this. When certain truths that the Bible teaches very clearly, and actually the New Testament talks about this in multiple places, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, and even later. Imagine that certain truths that the Bible teaches very clearly, but have been consistently overlooked for so long. That when your church begins to talk about them, they seem strange or even wrong. Folks can quite easily think that you're talking about something new or something untrue simply because I've never heard about it. I want to read to you from the insert that's inside your bulletin that you received this morning. It's a powerful quote. You can read along there uh, if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in. I'm just going to read this to you. I thought it was very helpful. Greg Allison uh, opens a chapter in a book this way. He says this, In a startling statement that, if true, 
should sober contemporary evangelical churches? Al Mohler said that the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members. In other words, you just kind of come if you want to, and everybody is really their own boss. That's what that sentence means. With minimal moral accountability to God. In other words, I get to do me. Nobody can tell me what to do. Much less to each other. He then warns, without a recovery of functional church discipline, the church will continue its slide into moral dissolution and relativism. He just basically says, unless we recover what the Bible teaches about this, we will continue to look more and more like the culture around us instead of like the church is supposed to look. The reasons Moeller offered for this serious decline include Christianity's creeping accommodation to American culture. In other words, whatever the culture is doing, we just need to baptize it. Because we want young people to be here. Including a culture of moral individualism, claims to autonomy and personal privacy. Narcissistic hedonism, which all that means is self-centered living for whatever feels good. And absolute relativism. What is disturbing about his statement is that if it proves to be true, evangelical churches will take on more and more of the unholy characteristics just articulated. What is more, and I think this is in bold on the sheet that I've given you, to reverse the trend so as to avoid this nightmare, the effort required will be so monumental and it will be so controversial that it will cost churches much time to teach on and reinstitute the practice of church discipline. It will take great effort to apply the recovered practice in the lives of persistently sinning church members. In other words, those who say, I'm a church member, I'm a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with turning away from my sin. And it will take deep repentance on the part of those members and compassionate mercy from churches toward those members. And lastly, it will take strong leadership to withstand congregational criticism for the restoration of the practice. Both scenarios are daunting. Can I get really real with you for just a second? You know, last week I said we were going to be talking about hard things. You know, it was kind of like this big mountain I'd been climbing and, you know, finally got over the sermon last week because it was uncomfortable, frankly. It was good for us. All, everything that's in the Bible is good for us. It was uncomfortable. I walked through my own inner struggle to convey unpopular truths in a gentle way. At the end of that, you folks were just so encouraging to me. I had a number of people give me encouraging feedback. And I kind of wanted to say, when folks were giving me words of encouragement, I kind of wanted to say, you, you do know we're just getting started, don't you? Like, it's kind of like, I feel like where we are in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, I kind of feel like we just got past, if you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know, western North Carolina, you can go do that, East Tennessee, I kind of feel like we just got past the class two rapid and everybody's like high-fiving, you know. And the guide is like, okay, let's start paddling. There's a class four next, you know. It's kind of how I feel here in chapter five. But everything in God's word is good for us, amen? 
one of the questions we're going to seek to address today is this. What does biblical love look like for people who are claiming the name of Jesus, who are saying, I am a member of that church, and who don't want to have anything to do with turning away from their sin and embracing Jesus. Public, unrepentant, ongoing sin. I've entitled this uh, sermon, What is Love? Baby, Don't Hurt Me. In order to get there, we need to talk about, first, about church membership. I've always found it easy to, or easier to address difficult topics with lighthearted titles. So, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. You know. And then the first point is this. A call to church membership in an age that could really, you know, care less, brah. Verse 4 says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. This is the first glimpse that we get. Not only is this letter written to a church, so it's almost like we're here gathered in Trenton, Kentucky on Sunday morning and somebody comes in right before I get up to preach and somebody comes in and says, hey guys, we got a letter from Paul. And the preacher says, okay, go ahead and read the letter from Paul. This is a letter that is addressed to y'all, to us as a body. And so the letter is addressed to a body of people, not just an individual. It's addressed to a church to tell the church what the church ought to be doing. And he says right here that there comes a time when a person who is, is claiming the name of Jesus and is claiming the name of that church through membership, when that person is giving such a false idea to the outside world about what a Christian is because they are consistently sinning. Everybody knows it. It's grievous sin. It's not just, oh, I made a mistake. It's grievous sin, sin uh, particularly, it seems here, of a sexual nature, and it's ongoing, and there's no desire to repent. At some point, the church has a responsibility to do something about it. I was talking to our class this morning and I said, you know, here's what's interesting about handling issues, addressing problems. Churches are kind of in a no-win situation. We'll either be called hypocrites for never dealing with our issues or we will be called judgmental for dealing with our issues, right? Let me give you an example from a church I'm familiar with in South Carolina. A gentleman uh, involved in ongoing uh, unfaithfulness, has no, has no concern to repent, uh, starts counseling and then drops off, uh, returns to his waywardness, uh, just continues going down that road. And uh, that church is, is at a crossroads. If that church just ignores it and acts like it's not happening... People will look at them and they'll say, a bunch of hypocrites over there at that church. They preach a big gospel, they talk a big game, but look what's going on. And they're just allowing it. A you know? bunch of hypocrites. 
If the church does have the temerity to say something about it, to address their own problems, to speak publicly about them, then all of a sudden the church is a bunch of judgmental bigots. Right? So you can't win. And I think in my conscience, where I've landed is what Peter says. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If we're going to suffer either way, why don't we suffer for following the Bible? Right? A call to church membership in an age that could really care less. You know, the word church membership, the phrase, has fallen on hard times. It doesn't carry good connotations in our culture. It sounds either exclusivistic, you know, better than, member, I'm a member of the church. You know, people have this idea that that's what church membership is. Or it's just meaningless, like a gym membership. Everybody has one, nobody uses it. So what I want to try to do is to give you a positive vision of what church membership is supposed to be and is supposed to do in our lives. Brief defense of church membership. Okay, uh, and, and by the way, you know, it's, it's becoming increasingly common for people to say church membership is not in the Bible, and I think that's because we've so poorly discipled our people that, that they, they, they just know about chapter and verse. They don't know about how to think theologically through the thrust of the Bible, what the Bible is teaching. So let me just give a, 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 quick, a quick defense. Uh, the first thing I would say is, you know, the word Trinity is also not in the Bible. You do understand that the Trinity, the Word, is not in the Bible. But the idea is everywhere. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, three persons, one God, eternally existing. Secondly, in the book of Acts, the early church knew exactly who was a part of their church. How do we know that? Well, they knew which widows they were responsible to care for in Acts chapter 6. Right? In other words... There's this grievance that's brought. They say, hey, some of our widows are getting served as we're taking food to the widows who, who are going hungry. Some of our widows are not being served. We need to fix this problem. And so there's this idea. They're not, they're not responsible for every widow in their city, but they are responsible for their widows, and they know who their widows are. So they know who is a part of their church and who is not. Secondly, also in Acts chapter 6, they knew which men they could pull from to raise up deacons when they had to pick seven. And they did that. Pastors were encouraged to shepherd the flock that is before you. There's this expectation of physical presence. This is who is the church, those who are physically gathering with us. And then also, places like James, places like Titus, places like Matthew 18, in the church discipline passages... There was this idea of who has made a covenant with us that we can hold accountable. There's this idea of inside and outside. The basis of church membership, we get this in Matthew chapter 16. He tells us very crucial things. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is incredibly scary, honestly scary stuff because it says that there is a kind of authority that is given to the local church. Number three, I say scary in a good way, like scary like it, it, it caused me to reflect on my responsibility and our responsibility. Number three, from the rest of the New Testament, what can we say about church membership? What is it supposed to do in our lives? Well, first of all, it's supposed to be the place where we gather to get encouragement and discipleship. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, how are we supposed to do that? Just by tuning into the Christian radio station at the same time and calling each other on the phone? 
So how are, we, how, are, how are we to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day is drawing near. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we have many guides in Christ, but we do not have many fathers. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 4, it's incredibly easy to believe that we can be discipled through podcasts or devotional books out here on our own in this Lone Ranger style. But really, the Bible tells us that the only way for us to really grow up into maturity is to be at the local church, have our Bibles with us, be paying attention, be digging into God's Word, not in isolation, but together. Next, it is the place where we're to exercise our gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, all were made to drink of the spirit. For the body does not consist of one, but of many members. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. In other words, everyone in this room has a different set of gifts. The church is where we are supposed to join the larger body of Christ and exercise those gifts. As I mentioned to the, to the, to the class a couple weeks ago, um, there are 103 uses of the Greek word for church in the New Testament, ecclesia. There's 13 of them pertain to the universal church, like all believers everywhere. Out of 103 uses, only 13 pertain to the big church of the world, of all believers around the globe. 90 times, 90 out of those 103, it refers to a local congregation. That's the thrust of what the Bible means when it says church, that we're supposed to belong to a body and covenant together. And then lastly, it's where we're supposed to hold one another accountable the Bible says in Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. How can you do this, especially in the New Testament where you don't have cell phones? You've got to be together. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this is the beauty of what church membership is supposed to be. We know that sin is coming for us. It's trying to lure us. It's trying to attract us. And it's trying to get us away, as far away as it possibly can, from God. But one of the bulwarks, one of the protections that God has given God's people so that we are not convinced by it that we're not deceived by it, is one another. He's given us one another, and we're supposed to be constantly calling each other back to follow Jesus. James 5 says very much the same thing. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So let's put all this together. What are we saying when we extend church membership to someone? We're saying, I commit, we commit to help you in your walk with Jesus. We commit to meet your needs as they arise. 
we commit to serve Jesus, to lock arms with you, to pray with you, to give and to go wherever we need to so that the gospel can go forward. It also says we commit to hold you accountable so that you and us together, we as the church can show the world a picture that the gospel actually does change lives. We are saying in church membership, we can't know your heart, right? We can't, we can't open your chest up and see where, where you stand with Jesus. But we see you repenting of your sins. We see you bearing fruit. We see evidence that God has done a work in you. One of the greatest parts of church membership is it actually gives us assurance of salvation because other believers are saying, I see God working in your life and it encourages me. Would you join? Would you lock arms with me so we, so we can get about the business of the kingdom of God? This is what church membership is. So now, knowing all of this, we're ready to understand this second part how we protect each other from spiritual danger. Point number two, related to church discipline, don't hate it, appreciate it. Verse five says this, or need to, need to actually read verse four for it to make sense. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What they're saying here is, is that there is something about that the call of the church, brother, sister, come back to Jesus. There's something about that call and there's something even about the willingness to say, brother or sister, like we, we've, we've done Matthew 18, we, we've gone to you alone, we, we've gone to you with two or three, we've told it to the church, you're still not interested in following Jesus, you're, you still love your sins instead of hate them, you still are far from Jesus instead of near to him, we, we have to say that we don't see any evidence anymore that you're a Christian. That sounds abrasive and harsh to us, but what the Bible says is it could actually be what leads that person back to Jesus. This is the walking around the wall seven times. It seems like it won't make sense. This is the raising our hands in battle. You just don't do this. That's not how you win a war. Let's remember a few things. What is, what is the mark of a believer? Is it perfection? No. Is it words? No. The mark of a believer is repentance. We're not perfect, not even close. But at salvation, at conversion, we have been given a new nature by God that causes us to hate our sins and to love Jesus. The mark of a believer is church is, is uh, repentance. So what is church membership? Well, church membership, we've said, is a protective community where we commit to keep each other safe, and that means we're not just supposed to let a brother or sister who wander off into eternity to step off into the abyss 
thinking that they are safe when the Bible says they're not. I cannot, I cannot imagine actually there being anything more unloving than just allowing that to happen. I mean, if you're driving down a road and you, you come across a bridge that has fallen in, but clearly nobody knows about it. The road department's not there. They haven't, you know, blocked it off or anything. And you turn around, and you're like, wow, i got to let somebody know about that. The bridge is out. You know, anybody driving down through here is going to end up in the river. And you turn around, and, and you go a couple hundred yards or, or, you know, maybe a half mile, and you meet your neighbor, and they're just flying down the road the opposite way. Are you just going to, like, give them the, you know, the redneck wave, you know, the thing people do when they meet, meet each other on the road? Are you just, you just going to smile at them and you know, say, hey? Are you going to, like, slam on your brakes and roll the window down and put both hands out the window and scream at the top of your lungs because you actually care about their destination? The Bible says that in the case of ongoing, serious, public, unrepentant sin, the church has a responsibility to protect its own witness and to call back the wayward person. Let me also give another caveat here. We're not, we're not talking about failure, right? I fail, you fail, we all fail every day. We're not talking about pulling out the microscope and trying to fault find. What we are talking about is not a witch hunt, but it's about clear cases where a person is basically giving evidence of saying, I don't need to repent. I'm good. I'm good. Me and Jesus are tight. Matthew 18 gives us some of the heart behind this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice the heart behind this is to keep the knowledge of the sin very close. We're not blasting this out on Facebook. We're not trying to ruin reputations. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Right? The heart is for restoration. It's not to club somebody over the head. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, somebody that you're trying to evangelize. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. There it is again from Matthew 16, now showing up in Matthew 18 around discipline. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything... They ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Man, gracious. It takes a paradigm shift to see this as good and loving. I remember when I was first being exposed to these things around 2010 through a book. Uh, the book has a, has a title. Hey, Lee, can you throw that up? Uh, Jonathan Lehman wrote a book. I thought the title was very clever. The church and the surprising offense of God's love. That the way that God has talked about love is surprisingly offensive to many of the people who say, I'm a Bible believing Christian. 
And as a result, friends, I mean, I had never been taught this stuff. My first reaction, too, was to be sort of put off. But we, because of our, and, and, and the reason for this in my heart and perhaps in yours, because of our sinfulness, we like to define love our own way. And as a result, even among Bible-believing Christians, we're, te- we're tempted to recoil at some of God's prescriptions. Can I tell you another story? When I was seven years old in the second grade, um, I-, I watched my mom go through chemotherapy. All right. So she was diagnosed with, um, with breast cancer in May of 1997. And I'm a second grader, so I'm understanding it in my second grade kind of way. And it strikes me that it would have been incredibly easy for me to interpret that situation the wrong way. As I watch my mom lose her strength, and as I watched her lose her hair, and as I watch her skin become jaundiced, it would have been easy for me to assume that that chemo was her enemy. But really, it was a grace, a difficult grace. Make no mistake. We apologize for the inconvenience. The remainder of this sermon did not record. We invite you to join us live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Trenton Baptist Church. We hope to see you here.